This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and social media are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. Welcome, welcome to, to Nothing, Nothing Happens in a Small Town. town. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. We're laughing because we just keep having to play with sound stuff. So if we don't sound exactly level, it's because we suck. <laughs> And I mean, we're doing our best trying to figure all this out, but yeah, it's a little challenging. <laughs> Maybe if it was our only job and right. we didn't have other things going on in our lives, yes. somebody would say, but if you care about it, you do it. It's like, yeah, some things are just frustrating. Yeah. And, and believe me, we've <laughs> had days where we're like, would you just flipping work? <laughs> I've had the eating the microphone issues, which I'm back to. So, you know, me and this microphone, we know each other quite well. <laughs> and yeah, it's just, it's just, it is what it is. Yeah, I'm watching the screen and it looks like we're about even with each other at least. So hopefully we sound okay. I haven't listened to, I, I'll listen to this co podcast when I get home and see if how it sounds. Sorry, y'all. This is us still sucking at... Technology is great if it works. And makes sense. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of different technology. Maybe we didn't pick the right one. I don't know. Yeah, and it's... I mean, I've tried different software. I've tried a few different things, and it's just... It's... We've gone through two different microphones for me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the first one was definitely not a good thing. Yeah. As Missy's dad can definitely attest to. Yeah. It was directional and I would basically literally have to eat that boy bad boy. Yeah. I think these I think these microphones are yeah. fine. And these are far better than the first one for you know, me. We have a soundboard now and I mean that that definitely seems to help. It's, oh my gosh, it, it, it is confusing though. And like, unless you're like somebody who has time to spend hours and or has figure a staff. It all out. I mean, like, I yeah. watch like Hoda Kotby has her podcast with people. I'm like, oh, look at their stuff. Of course, Cheryl Crow's going to have amazing yeah. microphones set up and stuff. Because I'm just thinking of a particular episode that she and Cheryl Crow, they also are doing it on TV. And I'm like, yeah, no, y'all don't need to see me. <laughs> nah, yeah, we're, we're, we're perfectly happy being behind the mic and not on video. Thank yes. you. My husband thought we were going to be on video. So what are you going to have behind you? I'm like, I don't mm, care. Nothing. <laughs> and speaking of, I'm like, ooh, I forgot to shut my phone off. <laughs> Oops, better do that. <laughs> at yeah. least uh, sound off so that y'all don't get some sort of, you know, spam call in the middle of an episode. <laughs> What's okay? Did we ever give my husband your husband's number in case he eats a wasp again? I don't think we did, but we should do that. Yeah, we should do that. <laughs> there was an episode that I we got done and I'm like, what the heck? He sent me pictures of his swollen tongue. He's like, what What did you do? He had a beer out on the, you know, the, he was sitting on the driveway watching the birds. Yes. And he did not look at beer before taking swig. It, yeah. No. And there was a wasp swimming in it. <laughs> mean wasp drinking my husband's beer? How dare you? At least right now, the wasp it would be frozen. I mean. Oh, yeah. He's not outside right no. now. It's 22 degrees when I left to come here. Yeah. It's and we're supposed to have snow today. Cold. 
This oh. morning I saw 16 degrees and I went, uh-uh, and put more pellets in my fireplace. Yeah. Uh, I went to take Dylan out and he's taking his sweet time and I'm like, dude, hurry up. It's cold. Yes. And we have now, since we kind of sort of talk about our lives a little bit, I'm doing better now, but I had to put one of my kitties to sleep yesterday, Miss mm-hmm. Sassy Pants. We will miss Miss Roxy very much. Yeah. She was the coolest cat I've ever owned, and I've owned cats my entire life. Mm-hmm. She was just the sassiest, craziest sass monster. <laughs> my dragon, my gargoyle. She always acted as if she had the ability to use a knife because she, she would kill us, <laughs> but was so entertaining. <laughs> She would sit on my table while I was typing on a computer or in front of my computer or on my computer, but she was always right there. Mm-hmm. But the poor little girl had hyperthyroid and we had to put her to sleep because she'd lost half her weight. Poor baby. Yeah. Anyhow, so, so I am wearing my Tortitude shirt to go for Roxy, which my best friend besides Melissa, <laughs> Michelle, gave me because she had what many uh, call Tortitude. She was a torty cat. Yeah. That's a dark calico. She she was so, so sassy. And I, I even remember the last time I was over, I accidentally almost, I didn't step on her, but I almost stepped on her. And oh my gosh, she hissed <laughs> at me and looked at me like I was... The devil? Yes. And I'm like, wait, aren't you evil incarnate? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you yelling at me? Yes. yes. She was the shredder of all paper products. We can now put toilet paper back on the roll in our house. Though I don't know if we'll know how to live with toilet paper on the roll after 13 years of yeah. no toilet paper on the roll. <laughs> she would shred paper towels if you grab the, the, the paper towel roll and you were going to go clean up a mess. Don't leave that roll out of sight. <laughs> I came back. I can't mime for you guys, but basically she had one foot around it, a front foot, one back foot around it, and she had her mouth on it, and she was ready to go to town. I think my favorite story, though, is Thanksgiving, the turkey. Oh, yes. She was a kitten. Yes. I forgot all of Well, I didn't forget about it, but uh, we had just gotten her. Somebody brought her into my husband's work, and we brought her home. And we had a couple people over for Thanksgiving, and we had a turkey, of course, and Sean let her climb up his up pant leg and was sitting on his lap at the table, and next thing you know, he looks down, and she's like got a hold of that turkey with her mouth, and she's just yanking her neck back like she's going to take this turkey that's like four or five times her size and pull it onto the floor to eat it. Yeah. I can, yeah, that just, <laughs> that story just completely. That is sassy pants. That is sassy pants. Yeah. That is, yeah. Yep. So, yes, we have no children. Our fur babies are our children. Yes. And she was just the craziest, coolest cat I've ever owned. Yeah. And Tara actually adopted two of my kitties, um, Will and Sophie. Because Which are now Chicken and Sophie. Chicken and Sophie, yes. Because <laughs> um, Will goes by Chicken now. Yes. Um, but, uh, I, my husband and I got together, he has severe allergies and it was just, uh, oh boy, what do we do? (laughs) Yeah. Basically I've told her if things don't work out, she needs to vet her men better and find kitty approved humans. (laughs) Not that I mind. Mr. Chicken is such a love bug. Triple bunny soft. Yeah. So soft. And Sophie is my head bonky kitty. Yeah. She sleeps on my pillow. And, yeah, sponks my head in the middle of the night. Yeah. 
She's and they awesome. seem to have integrated very well with your other cats. You know? <laughs> yes, I have too many cats. It's okay. It wasn't on on purpose. I love my felines and I wouldn't give them up for anything. So today's episode is a Doris episode. Yes. She love Doris. you, Doris. <laughs> like we say, we welcome any comments or suggestions. Yep. Here is one of our suggestions. And uh, so next week we also have another... Er, in two weeks, we have another um, suggested episode, which is a Kathy episode. So yes, we are we are following up on on our comments, and I even have a, a third suggested episode, which is um, a Kate episode. Oh, oh yes, I forgot about Kate. Yes, not that I can forget about Kate. Right, Kate but is amazing. Kate she is, is married to my wonderful neighbor from childhood. Yes, Kira. So. Um, this episode is uh, Ron and Ingrid Ellis, and this happened in Camp Springs, Maryland. It's a population of 21,841. As of now. And it technically, just like the ones in Chicago, this is a D.C. suburb, mm-hmm. but it is a, it has definitely has a small town feel and also a very interesting location because it's right near Andrews Air Force Base. Sorry, Joint Base Andrews. It's always going to be Andrews Air Force Base as far as I'm concerned, but <laughs> now it's supposedly this joint base, as if it wasn't joint before. Whatever. Anyhow, so, but... Uh, the um, DC Beltway transects it a little bit and it actually wasn't developed early like a lot of the areas around it wasn't developed till like the 60s or 70s so it really does have a really good down-homey middle-class feel and um, so most of what I'm going to read today is actually from a Washington Post article it's called the Ellis Family's Dream Becomes a Nightmare by Sarah Reimer and Sandra Saperstein. I'll say Saperstein. Yeah. Because, you know, most Americanizations of a German Stein become Steen for whatever reason. And um, this article was on May 10th, 1981. Um, I just want to make sure I say this is all... Yeah, quite a few. Them. Yes. Um, they, it, the article is fantastic, very thorough, and that's why I'm pretty much like, well, they pretty much did the episode right. for me. You just cut, cut out of a couple places that we didn't want to focus on, right. and then we'll, of course, uh, have our lovely commentary to go along with it. Yes. But um, And we did a couple little extra, because here and there, you know, when somebody else tells a story, you're like, well, what did they mean by that? Or... Mm-hmm. So, and I've also Google mapped it. Like I said, I mean, I know that area pretty well. My husband right. used to be stationed at Andrews while I was stationed at Fort Meade back when we were first married. So I will get into it. Um, the orange brick house on the corner of Coolridge Road in the Maryland suburb of Camp Springs was supposed to have been Ron and Ingrid Ellis's dream home. It had three bathrooms and a bedroom for each of the girls and a big backyard where they talked in happier times of putting a swimming pool. It had bright yellow shutters, a screen patio, a volleyball court, and a recreation room with a fireplace. Ron erected a stockade fence around the half-acre yard. He put down plush royal blue wall-to-wall carpeting in the living and dining rooms upstairs. He installed an intercom system all through the house. For the kitchen, they bought a white double-door fridge that dispensed ice cubes and ice water. So fancy. Well, in 1981, that <laughs> I was know. very fancy. I know. 
Having been a six-year-old then. (laughs) The house was everything that they had worked so hard for in their 15 years together. He is a printer and mechanic. She is a police officer. But it was not long after they moved in that things started to go wrong between Ron and the... He is, at the time, 34-year-old printer's son from rural Virginia and Ingrid, the 33-year-old daughter of a black American GI and a white Austrian school teacher. It was there in the dream house on the afternoon of May 2nd that everything came to a horrible end. Police found Ingrid's body with five bullet wounds at the bottom of the blue carpeted steps leading to the upstairs bedrooms. She had been killed with a handgun. Upstairs, they found two daughters, Monica Renette and Tammy Renee, as well as two of Ingrid's friends and one of the friend's sons. Their bodies lay in a small bedroom. All five had been killed with a shotgun. There were so many wounds that the medical examiner who did the autopsy said it was almost impossible to count them. At the Ellis family wake, Tammy's casket was closed. The wounds were too ugly. Of the Ellis family, only Ron and his eldest daughter, Tracy May, who was 15, were left. Tracy had been at the movies with a friend that Saturday. Ron was on his way to Chicago, a fugitive accused by police of killing all the people in the house. Um, It was known as one of the most violent incidents in Prince George's County history. The news stunned the family's friends and relatives. They knew that Ron and Ingrid had been having problems and that Ingrid was leaving and taking the children. They also knew that the couple's fighting had gone beyond angry words, that Ingrid had come to work once with a black eye and a swollen nose, and another time with bruises on her neck. But everyone thought that Ron and Ingrid simply were in the middle of a divorce, another sad, messy divorce. Afterwards, when six people were dead, they wondered why things had come apart. Ingrid and Ron had married young. She was 17, he was a year older, and the children came early. It was a good marriage until the last year or two. The friends and relatives say a match between two vibrant, hardworking people who wanted many of the same things in life. Some say that Ron and Ingrid grew up together and then grew apart just as they were achieving what they worked so hard for their place in the middle class. Husband and wife began wanting different things. Ingrid grew serious about her police career and talked of freedom. Ron wanted to draw his family closer around him. And there were financial pressures. No one is sure where Ron and Ingrid's money went, but their friends wondered if the house at 6700 Coleridge Road hadn't perhaps cost the couple too much. In the end, no one Maybe not even Ron and Ingrid themselves knew exactly what had gone wrong. As Ingrid's friend, D.C. Police Lieutenant Robert White said, it was a bad marriage. Who knows what happened? I don't know what happened to my own marriage. Ingrid's cousin, Helga Basket, thinks the problems started long before the house on Coleridge Road, long before Ron and Ingrid were married. She thinks it started with the houses they grew up in. Ron's in Bassett, Virginia and later in northeast washington ingrid's in the affluent neighborhood known as washington's gold coast they were from different classes she was always pulling him up the two have been born on 
different continents, Ron in the United States and Ingrid in Austria. Ingrid's adoptive parents are now are old now and can recall details of their daughter's life before they adopted her. Few details. They couldn't remember oh, much. Oh, can recall. Sorry. Yeah, I, no. I normally don't like to interrupt in the middle of uh, going through our script, but that's. I think that's pretty important that they really didn't know much about her childhood. Yes, I I did say that wrong. It's okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I feel like I'm an, uh, uh, like a teacher scolding here. Well, she was the daughter of a teacher. Yeah. But her 73-year-old adoptive aunt and grandmother, godmother, uh, Cleota Spots, remembers that Ingrid's natural parents were married and that it was difficult for them in Austria because he was black and his wife was white. Uh, They kept her as long as they could, but the townspeople kept running them out. Ingrid used to have nightmares about how they had to run and hide. Her father was killed. They couldn't get any information on his death. And Ingrid's mother remarried. She remarried a white man. I don't know anything about him, just that he was white. She kept Ingrid a while after they were married, and then she put her in a Catholic orphanage. She visited her regularly at the orphanage. just a sad thing that really we don't see as much anymore here in our country. Right. But still happens across the globe. But pe- And I'll talk about orphanages in our first break. Mm-hmm. Ingrid spent three or four years in the orphanage in Austria. She had not wished to leave there. The nuns made up a story about her future, thinking Ingrid's aunt supposes that it would make it easier for her to leave. They told her she might be discovered by someone from Hollywood and become an actress. She believed them, and when she was a child, she'd stand under the the trees and pose, waiting to be discovered. That was her dream. That's what they painted to her that would happen. She used to say, someday you're going to be reading about me. That's just so sad. It is. Ingrid Ellis was a beautiful woman, and she had been a beautiful child with gray-green eyes and blonde hair that turned brown when she was eight or nine. She was seven years old and spoke no English when her plane landed in New York. Her new parents, Marie and Archibald Withrow, now... Now in their 70s. Now in their 70s, waited excitedly to bring her home to Washington. It was an adoption arranged through Catholic Charities. As the only child of a Pentagon analyst and his school teacher wife, Ingrid grew up in a large house on 16th Street Northwest. That's such a beautiful area, too. I, I thought about actually add, adding stuff from the places they grew up, but mm. I neglected to do that because I found such interesting things on orphanages. Sorry, y'all. She was a talented child who studied piano, voice, and dance. She went to summer camp in St. Louis where her aunt, Cleota Spots was a choreographer with a modern dance group called the Spots Rockettes. That's I like that so name. freaking cute. It is cute. Spots remembers that Ingrid was preoccupied with marriage, marriage, marriage as a child. As a child. And that's really not surprising given her, you know, right. upbringing. She used to say, I'm going to get married someday. How old do you have to be to get married? Spots recalls, she told her, at least 20. <laughs> I'm sure that the seven-year-old version of her went 20. Oh my yeah. God, that's a million years old. 
Ingrid was educated at a private Catholic academy and at public schools. She was 17 and a student at Roosevelt Senior High School when she announced that she wanted to marry 18-year-old Ronald Quitman Ellis. I always thought I it I had to look up his name again just to be sure that was correct, but it yeah. is Quitman. Quitman, which is a very interesting middle name. It is. Wonder what that where that came from. It is yeah, and I kept I kept thinking, are you sure it's not like Quentin or something yeah. like that? But you're like Quitman just sounds so are you expecting him to quit? Quit? Yeah. Lie down? <laughs> you, you wonder if part of me this is just who I am. I never studied psychology, however, comma, my mom was, you know, a, a counselor and stuff, and you just wonder if that name mm. messed with him too. It could have. Um, not that that means you should kill people, but Right. <laughs> So soon, um, they, they wanted to get married soon because he was going into the Air Force. They had met at a hot shop where they both had summer jobs. The young man Ingrid wanted to marry had been born in Bassett, Virginia, home of the Bassett Furniture Company and not much else. A dreary little company town in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. I'm sure it's gorgeous, though. I know. I'm seeing her going... Um, I'll go. Let me see what it looks like. I want to look at the pretty mountains. I bet it is absolutely beautiful. Um, John Ellis Jr. worked as a printer at the Bassett Journal and was a scoutmaster who was proud when Ron, the eldest of his seven children, became a boy scout. When Ron was 10, his father decided that his family would have a better life in Washington. It was just after they passed the school segregation thing in 1954 John Ellis Jr. says today, I thought I could offer my kids a better life. That's just so awful to think. I mean, this is the 60s or the 50s, 50s and 60s. The leading up to desegregation, Virginia, you're about to talk about that. He wanted them to attend good schools, the ones where the white children went. There would be little chance of that in Virginia where then Governor... James Lindsay Almond's policy was massive resistance. Almond had vowed that desegregation would never happen in his state. Yeah, he was a really big proponent of keeping segregation alive. The Ellises moved into a two-story brick and shingled house with four bedrooms and a grassy yard at 2405 12th Street Northeast, down the street from Mrs. Sanders' candy store, and around the corner from the Red Brick Isle of Patmos, Patmos Baptist yes. Church, where 24 years later, the white caskets of Ron Ellis's wife and two children would rest among a garden of funeral wreaths. It's just so, so sad. sad. They lived in the house for 25 years, a close family who threw big barbecue parties for their relatives and neighbors. Mary Ellis, the neighbors remember, kept a close watch on her children. Keith Green, 29, grew up in a house on 12th Street next door to the Ellis's. He remembers the day 16 or 17 years ago when Ron pulled out his wallet and showed Keith the snapshots of his girlfriends. There were seven or eight pictures, Green said. They were all pretty, but the one he pointed out to me was Ingrid. He said, this is the one. That's her right there. That was his dream. John Ellis Jr. didn't approve of his eldest son's marriage. I tried to talk him out of it. I said, you ain't ready for it. Ingrid never put into words just what it was about Ron Ellis she loved. 
her cousin Helga said. Other than sheer animal magnetism, she was trying to make it. And here was another person trying to make it too, the cousin said. Ingrid's adoptive mother added, they felt like they were in love. I was happy for them. Yeah, it's just, you sit here and go, you wonder why his dad didn't approve. Part Mm -hmm. of it could have been because she was um, considered so much higher class than him. Maybe. Raised by a white, I mean, she, well, her family that she moved in with wasn't white, but she's half white and that might have been part of it too. I don't know. Or it could be, I mean, they were both young. Just the class issue. Yeah, and they are young. I mean, 17, 18 years old and, you know, maybe, maybe they were just too young. Yeah, and I guess my, my thoughts are also a little clouded by, um, we've got, two interesting things besides just talking about the town which you know i have to do and that's the third break but the (laughs) first two talking about um adoption and also talking specifically about the children of um white european women and black american gis is very interesting especially austrians they were very they didn't know about each other really (laughs) and it's it's interesting and it's one of those things where you're just like how can we do this to ourselves why do we do this to our children to our families to our neighbors and not be inclusive and it's just we need to continue to break these barriers yes it's very it's just sad it really is sad I've I don't understand I just don't understand (laughs) I guess that's the easiest way to say it yeah because there's class at play there's race at play of course um but yeah and unfortunately and sexism potentially as well we don't know how much it affected him that she was going up in her career where he was holding relatively steady but he was also having some improvements but yeah yeah. yeah. sorry we're (laughs) both just like (laughs) there's so many things you know that just make this whole story sad incredibly sad i mean it well like any murder story it didn't have to happen and that it was so close to being them just splitting their lives and going their separate directions yes and all the other people that were brought into this too is just horrible and one thing i do want to say is you know i i i think sometimes there's too much pressure on people to stay together you know and i especially in the catholic oh yeah you know catholic getting a divorce is like a horrible thing but i this was the early 80s i remember as a kid my mom being a divorced woman that being something that was talked about now there were other things but just that was one thing that was kind of shocking but it shouldn't have been though if like people could think of divorce as a good thing because you know staying together for the kids isn't always a good thing and sometimes you do grow apart from the person you're with that doesn't mean it's a bad thing it's It's part of human nature yeah i mean some relationships last a long time i mean i oh how many people thought my husband and i would be together for 25 years i don't know Well, and I've been through two divorces and, you know, it's one of those things where I don't, I, I, I honestly think in both instances, it was the best thing. The right thing. thing. Yeah. You know. I and, really like Rick. 
Yeah. I'm glad you have him and you're not with the first one. I know, me too. I, I don't I, think you'd be here. No, I don't think I would be either. I'd but, be reading your story and very sad, probably. Yes. But I, I do think as a country we need to, well, as a world, really. I was say, just as, as world, people. As people, you know, stop, stop putting your ideals on other people. Right. You know, let's, let's just... You know, if it's a bad marriage, it's a bad marriage, and you, you know, or it went from being a good marriage to now it no longer works, right? Because people grow, people become different. Yes, I am not the same person I was at eighteen. Yes, and left and went into the air force. And it's way different person. Hey, if people split up, maybe it's even a good thing. Right. Let's stop. You know, idealizing this this whole you have to be married for the rest of your life thing. And I mean, I probably am having people (laughs) going, what is wrong with you? But, you know, I'm sorry. I am divorced. I do think, I do think in many cases it's a good thing. Right. And children from broken homes, if you will, they find love and life and happiness too. Mm -hmm. I'm a child from a broken home. Yes. So I'm the child from a broken home. Your parents are still together. I'm the one who's been married for 25 years. I am divorced twice. So, you know, any of these, I mean, obviously these are just our examples, but it's, it's not going to be indicative of how your children will grow up. No. I had wonderful people that were role models growing up. I sort of mentioned Kira before. Her family, the trainers, were amazing neighbors. Awesome people. uh, Second family to me as well. Yes, that's how we ended up being good friends is the trainers are to thank. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I had a dog that matched their hair. (laughs) They have red hair. I had an Irish setter setter, mutt mix, and she was adorable. All right. Well, we've rambled. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so we can totally ramble if that's not obvious. Um, so I did some, I actually found rather quickly a couple of very interesting articles. I mean, one quick Google search. I mean, sure, I used a lot of words, but I was just looking for how do children end up in orphanages? I literally Googled that and came up with an article that says, why do children end up in orphanages? I'm like, okay. Um, let's look through this article. And I found a couple other ones, but I kept coming back to this article. So, um, despite a hundred years of scientific research showing how orphanages damage children, an estimated 8 million children worldwide are still confined to loveless institutions. It is a global crisis. That's amazing to me. 80% of children in orphanages have a living parent. How many people knew this? Um, but are abandoned because of poverty, disabilities, or discrimination. And see, this is where it ties into what we're talking about now, Uh discrimination. And there are, according to this um, person who's doing research, there are four sets of reasons why children end up in orphanages. That first one being poverty, disabilities, and discrimination. Some families struggle to cope, whether it is finding work, feeding their children, or paying for school fees. Many experience housing challenges or live with mental health problems or social exclusion. Social exclusion would be an issue that you kind of heard them talk about with regard to um, Ingrid's family. Um, 
So some, yeah, there some families are coping with disability or special needs, breakdowns in relationships, alcohol and drug abuse are also common. So families sometimes see orphanages, children's homes, and institutions as a way in which they can improve the chances for their children. And this is fed by a perception that their child will be better off, which you heard that as well with regard to Ingrid and her mom. Right. And, you know, they have some alternatives they're putting in there. It maybe we should be concentrating our resources to other than orphanages um, or the resources we do put in orphanages to find ways to support those fil- those families that feel they have to take their children to them. Um, here in the States, it was actually still pretty common to put their children in orphanages through the 50s as well. I've read a couple of stories about, not Betty White, I'm trying to remember who it was, but there was another interesting person that passed in the last couple of months that reading through their history it's like oh and their mother put them in the orphanage when she couldn't pay afford to pay for school and clothes then picked them up i'm like holy crap how long ago was this so this was actually pretty commonplace here in the u.s because you want to just think oh that's not here and i'm not i would be interested to read more on the u.s in this situation but most of this seems to talk about third world countries in this particular article that i read so um another reason is lack of social services so people who talk about we don't want to be a socialist country having social services is not being socialist just gonna (laughs) throw that out there sorry my mom was a social worker i have a lot of care for this Mm -hmm. um if you lack preventative and alternative family and community-based care services that social workers are readily able to be um when you lack these things social workers will refer children into orphanages rather than find ways to care for the family this is compounded by the lack of training and support of social workers themselves to help them uh, develop alternatives for children They are often reluctant to place children back with their families or to develop alternative family and community-based care arrangements because they do not have the skills or adequate support to provide them. So orphanages are often used as a convenient first resort instead of being the last resort as required by the UN guidelines on alternative care. But orphanages are not always safe or convenient for children. On average, when a child is placed into an orphanage, it is estimated they will spend eight years confined within it. I love their, their little um, much on some of the words here. <laughs> and profoundly negative lifelong consequences. Um, some feel that orphanages shouldn't even be a last resort. I'm not sure I'm quite there because there are children who truly have no parentage. So, and not every place has the resources to put a people children to foster care and what have you but you see the united states has really relied heavily on foster care rather mm-hmm. than orphanages because right. it is placing a child into a family home setting mm-hmm. and there's no perfect answer no reason three the orphanage business and yes they say business whether state-run or private are financed on a per capita basis funding per child As a service, every orphanage requires a basic threshold of financing below which it should not exist. Therefore, in order to ensure the continuation of the service, whether as individual orphanages or as a wider institutionalized system, a minimum number of children are required to be placed within it. This method of financing inevitably established perverse incentives that work against children's best interests. That is just amazing to me. Mm 
but at the same time not amazing at all mm. it makes sense as much as it's horrifying so conversely because the money does not follow the child in such systems there is no incentive to place them back into families where there is genuine strategy to reduce the number of children in orphanages the reform process begins to slow down to avoid closure as it did for example in serbia wherever orphanages are still open for business there will be financial incentives to build back and inflate the service through the referral of children into it. For example, by the end of the 1990s, Uganda had made great progress in closing its orphanages. The number of children in the remaining ones was less than 2,000. The donor funding was largely cut from the reform process. By 2015, the system had experienced a process of rapid inflation as a consequence of the underlying financial model, and 55,000 children were back in orphanages. Wow. This was over a period when the net number of actual orphans in the com country were significantly reduced. So these were children with at least one surviving parent. Wow. I, I mean... This is what stuck me about wow. this. I was like, how this... And it's still happening in the world. And you're like, I like the idea that there's a fail-safe so children just aren't on the street. But oh, good gracious. Yes. This sounds like an evil empire. Not... Yeah. Not good. Not good. Not good at all. <laughs> Wait till this next reason. Oh, yeah. Child trafficking and exploitation. Oh, that makes me sad. If you all could see Missy's face right now. <laughs> yes. I'm like, I'm like, Missy, this one just, you, you can understand because humans can be such terrible people that this would happen, but it still just bothers me so badly that this happens. There is a darker side to the orphanage economy, and to actually call it an economy is so bizarre. There are a small number of cases in which children are actively taken into orphanages and exploited. The condition of the children and the orphanage they live in is used to attract funds from well-meaning donors. This can be a highly lucrative business. Such practices turn children into commodities. Sometimes children are used for labor, but in the worst cases, paid access to the children for sex and trafficking inflict the most extreme forms of abuse. For example, some 12,000 children were trafficked out of Nepal every year, many of them via orphanages, into India, where it is estimated by Human Rights Watch that some 1 million Nepalese women and girls were forced to work in brothels. That just hurts my brain. Yeah, that's just sad. I, I just... Mean... Human trafficking is horrible. Yes. And that you would take some institution that has donors giving you money to do a good thing and turn it into a bad thing. Yeah. Not so I'm not anti-orphanage, but I am... Holy crap, let's keep an eye on them. Yeah. And... I actually was trying to see if there was anything about an orphanage in Vienna, and I really quickly found the Vienna Foundlings Orphan's Home, and I'm so happy that it was not around when Ingrid was born. Um, it was uh, basically from 1784 and closed in 1910. The Vienna Foundlings and Orphans Home. After public health reforms and a series of infanticide cases in the late 18th century, the Vienna Foundlings and Orphans Home was set up in Asler Street, opposite the General Hospital. 
It closed in 1910, and that time it took in 730,130 children between the revolution of 1848 and 1868. Around 30% of all children born in Vienna went to the foundling's home. Until 1813, 97% of all the children taken by the Vienna foundling's home died. So, yeah. Uh, that is terrible. Wow. So, obviously they've gotten a little better. But wow. I was like, in 1799, half did not survive the first month. Between 1784 and 1910, 68 did not survive until the period until the end of their period of care. The main causes of child mortality were infectious diseases as well as stomach and digestive disorders. Mm. So, <laughs> Missy's holding her hand I'm over like, her heart. I'm I think so I broke sad Missy. Now. She <laughs> sorry. may have. I'm sorry. This was a sad one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this is that whole. This is where she came from, and I'm wondering, yeah. you know, her parents, her uh, adoptive parents, didn't know much about her, and uh, though they do paint some pretty pictures, like, oh, the nuns said you'd be better off here, which actually there's some discussion in the next piece about that, the next mm. break, um, but that orphanages are just so terrible but mm. people thought well i'm giving them hope and you're like no you're not maybe not so much <laughs> yeah wow wow yikes. yikes yikes is definitely the right word so on to part two uh ren and ingrid were married on january 22nd 1966 <laughs> at the saint Francis Xavier Church at 2800 Pennsylvania Avenue Southeast. Their wedding day was cold and snowy. The cake was ruined when whoever carrying it slipped on the ice. That stinks. (laughs) Another cake had to be delivered for the reception. Ingrid's aunt couldn't make the wedding but sent a couple of full sets of china from the famous bar department store in St. Louis. Years later when she visited the couple in their house in Camp Springs, she noticed that the china, some of the china was missing. Ingrid said it had been broken over the years, piece by piece. They just weren't careful of things. Hmm, that's sad. After the wedding, the couple moved into an apartment on Savannah Terrace Southeast. With money from the Ellis's and furniture from the Withrows, both were still in high school, run at McKin- McKinley Technical, Ingrid at Roosevelt. Ron was learning to be a printer like his father. That spring, he enlisted in the Air Force. He did his initial training at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. Where it still resides. And was assigned to McGuire Air Force Base in Wrightstown, New Jersey, where he spent four years. Ingrid, who was pregnant, moved into the house on 12th Street with Ron's parents. We got to know Ingrid like our daughter. Our own daughter, John Ellis said. Their first child, Tracy Marie, was born in the hospital at Andrews Air Force Base the Thanksgiving after Ron and Ingrid were married. The early years, by all accounts, were good years. After Tracy was born, Ingrid moved to a house in New Jersey called New Egypt. She wanted to be near Ron. They were happy, Ron's father said. There were no problems there, nothing major. 
course, you never know what goes on behind closed doors. Right. And they lived a little further away. And back in the 70s, they, I mean, Jersey isn't that far from here. A lot Mm -hmm. of people drive back and forth, but the roads weren't the same as the roads now. Because, I mean, even the Capitol Beltway was built, what, in the 60s. So, anyhow, sorry. Things I'm thinking through that I'm like, hmm, I wonder how easy would it have been? I mean, Amtrak services were probably around, but again, harder to visit. Yeah. Uh, Ron received an honorable discharge from the Air Force in 1970. He came home, and together the couple began working for the house they wanted to own someday, and for the things they, that would come later, the ballet and piano lessons at Montessori School for the children, the station wagon and bicycles and trips to Atlantic City. On the way to the house in Camp Springs, they lived um, they lived in a garden apartment in Silver Hill, a rented house in Bowie, and a house they bought in Landover. I used to live in Bowie. Mm-hmm. Ron Ellis wanted what his father and mother had wanted for their children. His mother, Mary Ellis, said he wanted nice things. He wanted the same thing everybody does. He wanted land. Ron became a printer and, on the side, a mechanic. He was skilled at both trades, and even in the last year when their marriage was ending, Ingrid would talk about how Ron could fix anything on a car. When her husband came home from the Air Force, Ingrid went to work, too. In August 1970, she joined the D.C. Police Department as an officer and became a vocalist with the department's side-by-side band. One of the other female vocalists was Lenaya Bryant, who remembers that the new member of the group was not exactly welcomed at first. Ingrid could sing better than any of us, she said. They became close friends, and Bryant watched admiringly years later as Ingrid changed. At the beginning, she didn't really want to take the job too seriously. She was on the scooter running up against authority all the time. Very much in love. In those years, Ingrid glowed when she talked of her husband. She used to say that Ron was meant for her. She said she really never wanted any man but Ron. Ron said almost the same thing to one of his friends at work, a plate maker named Fred Collison. He once told me, there's no one like my wife. I double dated once with them to a concert at Constitutional Hall. They had a beautiful relationship. Both were fine athletes, and they were always going swimming or bicycling or playing tennis or racquetball. They put up a volleyball net at their house. Ron dabbled in drag racing and in karate, too. They liked to go to concerts on the weekends. They always seemed to be having so much fun, Ingrid's aunt remembers. Green, who had looked up to Ron ever since they were kids together on 12th Street, felt that Ron Ellis had made it. I always thought he had a happy, close-to-perfect relationship. He had just about everything everyone wants, according to the American Dream. Ingrid had her job at the police department, but part of her was still the girl posing under the trees waiting to be discovered. She was always singing songs from the top 40, and Officer William Taylor, who sat next to her at a police academy, called her Aretha. <laughs> she loved to go to the theater. She saw a chorus line two or three times. She joined an acting workshop at the Black Repertory Theater. She got a bit part as a receptionist in All the President's Men. She hustled down there every day while they were filming, Bryant said. 
She wanted Ingrid Ellis in that movie. When it came out, she said she couldn't find herself in it. She really wanted to go to New York and try to get into the theater, but she kept saying, how can I do that with three kids and be married? I guess she felt the odds were against her. Two and a half years ago, the Ellis's moved to the house on the corner of Coleridge Road. The house in Landover, Landover had only three bedrooms and Tracy and Tammy had shared. Now, for the first time, each of the girls would have their own room. That was most important to Ron. He adored his children, especially Monica, the youngest, a precocious child with blue eyes and long, light brown hair. Ingrid used to say that Monica was her father's heart. Uh, I can't with so that sad. one since he killed her. Yeah. He boasted of his children around the shop at McArdle Printing Company in Silver Spring. He said they would sing and play the piano. He said one of the girls was in ballet school. He wanted the best for them. Ron's aunt from Shelby, North Carolina, Claudine Maddox, remembers when the Ellis's moved from Landover to Camp Springs. Their new neighbor had $100,000 split-level homes with five to seven bedrooms and large, well-trimmed lawns with azaleas blooming in the gardens. A little pocket of affluence in Prince George's counties, one resident called it, saying that the houses could would be twice would worth. be worth twice as much in Montgomery County. Ryan was all excited about it, Maddox said. He wanted to take us out to see the new house. I knew he was eager to move. He said the kids would have a larger place to play. Like I said, it was a half-acre lot. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful location. Um, It was on the corner with Addison Road and really close to an intersection that has a lot of different... um, Well, now I I think of places that were there when I used to go to Andrews a lot. But yeah, there's a lot of shopping centers in the area. Very homey. Mm. And a half acre lot. That's really big. Yeah. My house in Bowie, that was maybe like a third of an acre. And it still was decent sized. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, this would be totally be a dream. And like I said, so I found an interesting thing. um, Black Austria, the children of African-American occupation soldiers. So, occupation children, brown babies, Besatzungskinder, Mischlingskinder, so basically mixed kids. In some ways, the history of occupation babies or brown babies as has become a standard and well-integrated part of 20th century European history. Born of African-American GIs and European women in post-World War II era, these sons, daughters of American-European fraternization presented new challenges to Europe's racial and national identities in the aftermath of an era consumed by racism itself, Nazi Europe. There's a whole bunch of interesting topics, uh, books on this topic, and actually I'm probably going to order a couple of them because I'm quite intrigued. In 2016, there was an exhibit in Vienna, Austria, created by historians and curators Nico Wall, Philipp Rohrbach, and Tal Adler. Uh, the idea for this exhibit first began in 2008 after an interview with a woman named Trudy Jeremias. Fleeing Vienna in 1938 at the age of 13, she and her family moved to the United States to escape the Nazis. In the 1950s, she worked as a flight attendant for a Belgian airline in New York City, and because she spoke German, she found herself as the welcome wagon for Austrian children 
who were arriving into the States to be adopted by American families. Many of them were black. As Val and Rohrbach pieced, pieced together her stories, they began to assemble this research project on black Austrians born in the post-war era. Um, the exhibit Schwarz Österreich, or Black Austria, Die Kinder Afrikomanische Besatzungssoldaten is on display in the Volks, Volkskundmuseum in Vienna. So it was in uh, April 27th through August 21st in 2016. So basically the the name I gave you a minute ago. <laughs> I My German's a little rusty right now. I was like, ugh, can't say that word. Anyhow, so it was the first public exhibit in Austria to reflect on the history of Austria's black population. It is a milestone for black people in Austria seeking to have their own identities and experiences acknowledged by the public. Of the 30,000 children born between 1945 and 1955, when the United States military left Austria, the number of biracial children is unclear. The people involved in the project were able to collect the names and information for about 400 of them. Although small in number, their presences speckled across towns, villages, and communities across Austria, from big cities such as Salzburg and Vienna to small towns in Upper Austria, were highly visible and nearly always controversial. Due to the translation and digitization of effort digitization efforts of organizations such as the German Historical Institute in Washington, D.C., for example, many of us now teach our students how the West German state responded to the presence of mixed-race children in the immediate post-war years, how their anxieties about such children led to the creation of transnational adoption programs, thinking that biracial children would be better among their own kind back in the United States to the establishment of a social science research projects and to the foundation of several orphanages in West Germany as well. They were actually founded for specifically black children of American soldiers. We know about these histories in part because the sons and daughters of black soldiers and European women have made them known. In Germany, black German writers, thinkers, and activists in the 80s and 90s used their narratives to begin forming a collective Afro-German identity and establishing the current Afro-German movement. Telling their stories, in other words, became one way to help their Black Germans connect together and create a sense of shared collective identity. Even the process of collecting stories from Austrian quote-unquote occupation children reveals how different the Austrian case was in comparison to other European countries. Upon learning that researchers planned to organize this exhibit, many black Austrians marveled that historians wanted to research them. As one black Austrian named Freddie put it, I'd always thought I was the only occupation baby. I would have liked to get to know more. What do they talk about? Are they like me? Do they also have bad experiences? Like in West Germany and elsewhere, many occupation children were the only black girl or boy in their town and were not aware of any others like them. But what is striking about the Austrian case is how little the black Austrians knew about each other in their adult and senior years. Isolation defined their experiences as mixed race people in Austria. So this makes you think maybe Ingrid was better off coming to the States. Kind of wow. sounds like it. And I had no idea it was, wow. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, I can't speak to the why or the how and I don't want people to think that my host family in Austria was a bunch of racist but I remember one time um, 
Well, I've seen this of, okay, so I'm going to backtrack a minute. I've seen this of other people who live in rural settings. You see somebody coming down the road, you are looking out the window. I remember the Durickies growing up. It's like if a car came driving by, it's like, who's that? Who is driving on my road? Because nobody has a reason to be here. And the same thing. Yetzing was the middle of freaking nowhere. There were three uh, farmhouses in one house. And it was just up the road from Virmla. And I remember my host mother one time was like, oh, that could be Schwarze, though. There's a black person coming. And you're just like, the heck? And I'm like, oh, well, it would be less common. So I don't want you to think, you know, she is older. And that definitely means it's an unknown person to her. But I remember being thinking very unkindly of my host member, mother for a moment. I was just like, <laughs> Wow. So is that like saying, and she actually, I don't think she said Schwarzer. I think she said Nigo, mm. which, mm, yeah, mm, yeah. I don't know. I didn't live there for but a year. So I don't know if that word is as terrible there as it is here. Yeah. So it's just, um, but it does speak to how different would her life have been? Obviously she did have an amazing life growing up in yeah. Northwest. I mean, you're talking about beautiful area with uh, where all the, um, uh, geez, I can do words. <sighs> I can think of the words in a moment. Maybe <laughs> if we take a break, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> but uh, it's a gorgeous area. That's where all the um, foreign countries, they have their word. I'm not sure. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Tara can't do words. Maybe she'll think of it in a moment. Because, you know, consulates and stuff like that. That's, mm. that's where I was looking for. Okay. Um, so, part three. Yeah. Okay. Um, they bought the house in Camp Springs for $74,500 with a 30-year mortgage um, financed through a Veterans Administration loan. I've had a few of those. VA loans are awesome. (laughs) The down payment was small, but the $765 dollar monthly payments were a strain from the beginning. Even with Ron working two jobs, Ingrid was making about 19000 a year. She complained constantly that she was broke, that she was paying the bill, all the bills. No one understood where the com- couple's money was going. She had asked her mother for money but to buy Tammy shoes for Easter. She said she didn't have any money for fun. In August, she said, where am I going to get money for the school clothes? She got depressed around Christmas. Every time I saw her, she said, I have no money for Christmas. She didn't know what she was going to do for the children. They fell behind in payments. In the end, the Ellis's were behind in their payments and the bank was threatening to take the house. Ron complained that his wife wasn't helping and that they weren't pulling together anymore. He wasn't the confiding sort but when it came out in small ways his friend eddie roan said i i'd say i was going home and my wife had dinner waiting and he'd say it must be nice like his wife didn't make dinner or something well let me tell you me going home and sean making dinner is freaking awesome <laughs> by the way well and she was a police officer yeah they were she both working had when we, hours. Yeah. when we both worked, I'm telling you, I mean, you know it, you and your husband both work. Yeah. It's, it's hard. We pre-make dinner. Yeah. <laughs> we make it on the weekend and eat during the week. I, I eat alone during the week. He yeah. eats alone during the week. It just is. It's 
fine. It doesn't bother me, but yeah, but it's, it's hard. I remember we used to, um, depending on, cause sometimes when Sean was in the air force, he worked funky hours too. So it really did depend. And again, we don't know what her schedule was as an officer. Ingrid didn't have much free time in the last couple of years, not after they had gotten serious about her career, not after she had gotten serious about her career with the department. It was shortly after they moved into the house on the corner of Coleridge Road that she began talking about wanting different things, independence and a job that was more than 40 hours a week and a paycheck. She seemed finally to give up her dream of being an actress, instilled in her for so long by the nuns in Vienna. Now she wanted to move up on the police force. She wanted to make more money. She wanted stripes. She was transferred to the academy to teach a special course for veteran officers. Her supervisor was Lieutenant Jerome Rollins, 27 years with the department, a man who came on Unlike the head football coach. (laughs) (laughs) So she had a coach. Ingrid called him her mentor, and he pressed her to study and advance. She was still an officer when he started calling her Sergeant Ellis. It's okay, Sergeant Ellis, let's get it done. She was very apprehensive at first. She was afraid of falling, Roland said. Failing, yeah. Failing, yeah, sorry. I told her not to worry. We all make some mistakes. I kept after her all the time to study. One time she said to me, this is something I should have been doing all the time. This is just so sad because she was really getting her life together. And I was doing some of the math on what we know of their finances. And you do wonder um, if she was making about 19,000. We see somewhere he was making 450 a week. So before taxes, they were making like 2,300 a month. But I don't know how much went to taxes, how much, you know, maybe they had car payments. Because 765 that's a pretty small portion of the 23 Because that's, yeah. I mean, but still, that's maybe a third of your income. And you really don't want your mortgage to be more than a quarter. Because, mm-hmm. well, yeah, you can, especially with three kids and mm-hmm. whatever you aspire to do. It doesn't sound like he liked cheap things. No. At the academy, they called her Minuteman because it seemed like she was always running somewhere, rushing to get Tammy to ballet school, uh, rushing back to study with Rollins. She brought her police manuals to the ballet school and studied in an office there. Ooh, and they also had their children at Montessori, so private school tuition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ballet. put all her energy into her career. She loved it. She thrived on the recognition. I was amazed. I was proud of her. Uh, Ingrid was succeeding at work. She was about to make sergeant, a job that would mean a $25,600 annual salary, but her marriage was failing. She began to talk for the first time since Brian had met her of leaving. She used to say that she never had time to be on her own. She married right after high school, and she had never had any freedom. About a year ago, she said she'd like to try living on her own with the kids. Ron, meanwhile, was consumed by the house, according to his wife. She said Ron was always working. She said all he wants to do is stay in the house, work around, and fix it up. During the day, he fixed cars in the garage at home. He worked the night shift at the printing company where he started in 1972 as a press assistant and earned a a reputation as a model employee. While his wife was working towards sergeant, Ron was doing his two-year apprenticeship. On May 21st, he would have become a journeyman 
press man making about 450 a week. His friend Goldston, 34, also an apprentice, recalled, he was so happy about coming off his apprenticeship, that's what everyone wants. Sometime last spring, Ingrid came to the academy with a black eye and a swollen nose and a story no one believed. I, Rollins said, I asked her what happened. She said she's been in the bathroom and she was so tired from studying, she fell off the commode. I said, Ingrid, wait a minute, you're dealing with a pro now, but she never changed that story. God, that sucks. Lieutenant wait, White was blunter. Your husband p- punched you out, didn't he? Bryant knew the t- truth. She said he would hit her, but Ingrid was the type she probably hit him back. I kept saying, Ingrid, you've got to be careful. She kept saying, I am. I'm going to handle it, all right? On February 17th, Ingrid was promoted to sergeant. Officer Taylor will never forget that day. I believe he heard Ingrid shout all over the building. I think getting promoted was the start of a new era for Ingrid. That just, she was so happy. Yeah. White, who was expecting Ingrid at his 36th birthday party the night she was killed, said Ingrid was really pumped up about getting promoted. She was on cloud nine all the time. Rollins attended the promotion ceremony and Ingrid came up to him afterward. She told me, I haven't finished. I'm going to keep on going. She could have made lieutenant by 1982. Yeah, she had her stuff together. Ron Ellis was not at the ceremony. No one remembered him coming to any of the police functions. Ingrid always came alone, even to the black officer's ball, her friend said. But he was proud of his wife, the D.C. police sergeant. He told me when she got a promotion, he was really happy about it. I, I don't know. I, I going back to that whole. I don't think he was happy with how uh, successful she was. Yeah. And I mean, now that we know he actually wasn't going to make four fifty a week until he made the journeyman thing. I don't know. They could have really been pressed on money. Yeah. Ingrid let it be known that she was going to leave Ron in June when the children finished school. She had high hopes for the summer. Tammy was a gifted sco- student at the Capitol B- Ballet School on Georgia Avenue. And Ingrid hoped to send her with a group from Capitol to the Rosella Hightower Ballet School in Cannes, Cannes, France. It costs $1,800 for a month. That's That's a lot of money. Yeah. Considering you're talking, she was going to be making, what, like $900 a month? No, more than that with her new job. Yeah. Give me a second. I can do math. Um, Ingrid had already asked her mother and her aunt to help. Ingrid began looking for a place to live. The relationship was over, her friend said. There was nothing left to fix up. It was a bad marriage. She was fed up with it. They were both seeing other people. Um, that would have been, that, that ballet school in Cannes would be almost exactly her take-home pay with the new. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. You definitely have to save up for that. And if you don't have any savings... Asking for family friends to help. At best, their friends and relatives can piece it together. Sometime around Easter, the Ellis family fell apart. Tracy ran away from home to stay with the girlfriend's family. On April 20th, the day after Easter, her father reported to police that his daughter had run away and had broken into the family home to get some clothes, according to Lieutenant Robert Miller, one of those handling the Ellis investigation. No one has said precisely what made the girl leave, but trouble had been brewing between Tracy, 
a, a determined and brash girl and her father for more than a year. About 16 months ago, Tracy had run into a neighbor screaming that her father was going to beat her. Another neighbor intervened, and after finding out that Ron Ellis had planned to whip Tracy for cutting school, he turned her over to the family. Sometime last spring, one of Tracy's closest friends remember calling Tracy and having her come to the phone in tears. She said, he blackened my eye and broke my finger, the girlfriend recalls, and a neighbor remembers Tracy confiding that her parents were divorcing and that she was glad because she would be living with her mother. It was around Easter, too, that Ingrid moved in with a woman friend in Arlington. She ran into Bryant in the hallway at the police department around that time. She showed me the bruises on her neck where she said Ron had choked her. She said she thought that he was going to kill her and that she had stopped breathing, but then he just stopped. I hugged her and said, you take care of yourself. She said, I will. I never saw her again. Oof. The house on the corner of Coleridge Road went up for sale last week in for sale the last week in April. The price was 99500 Goldson noticed that his friend Ron, who had always been smiling, cheerful type, seemed subdued. He said his wife is going to leave him. He didn't want her to leave. He didn't want the family to break up. He looked kind of sad, but I don't think he ever gave up. I don't know. I think he gave up. <sighs> I think there were a lot of problems yeah. there. Because they were going to make, I mean, I don't know how much they were in arrears, but it was going to be like if they did get their asking price, which it sounded like they were going to get like 25 grand. Yeah. Um, I, well, over what they bought it for, I have no idea how, it's only been a couple of years since they'd bought it. So yeah. I don't think they had a heck of a lot of equity yet, but geez, he just, okay. Also, uh, it's starting to snow here. I'm, and we also have been extra talky. So Doris, you found us a really long episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, and because I have to talk about the town, it is, like I said, it's, it's a suburb of DC, um, population 21,841, as M Melissa said. Um, the community of Camp Spring was settled uh, in the mid-19th century at the crossroads of present-day Branch Avenue and Allentown Road. And if you remember, Allentown Road is where Coolridge was, the house was on that corner. Um, by 1860, the settlement contained several stores, a blacksmith shop, a school, Methodist church, and several residences. The early maps record the name of this uh, settlement as Allentown after the Allen family. The Allens were large landholders in the area, hence the name of Allentown Road. Um, there also was an Allenwood Elementary School was named in recognition of them. The town's popular name and subsequently the name of its post office was Camp Spring. Camp Springs, excuse me. According to local history, the community was called Camp Springs since soldiers en route to Fort Meade from the District of Columbia found the area to be a comfortable place to camp due to the abundant springs. So there you go. There's its name. Throughout late 19th and early 20th centuries, the Camp Springs area did not experience significant growth. However, the opening of Andrews Air Force Base on an adjacent tract of land and the proximity of the area to District of Columbia and a housing shortage after World War II, mm, can we say baby boom, made the Camp Springs area an ideal location for residential development. Most of the development in Camp Springs area occurred north of Camp Springs crossroads in the 40s and 50s. The lack of water and sewer lines in most locations until the 1950s and 60s kept pace of development slow. Then something happened called they built the Capitol Beltway. So that's when all the 
water and sewer lines came in. Um, Piles Lumber Company, a historic lumber business at the crossroads, was destroyed by fire in December 27th of 2000. That, um, when that left, the 19th century crossroads pretty much vanished. Um, reconstruction of Branch Avenue is now a limited access divided highway and extensive commercial and residential development. Because most of Camp Springs actually does uh, reside just outside the Beltway. And this, their particular home was like between Branch Avenue. If you look at the Beltway and Branch Avenue, it's kind of like a, a triangle. It was right in this little spot there. Like I said, it was, it's a pretty nice place to be. Easy access to get to the Beltway. Easy access to take Branch Avenue all the way into D.C. So I can totally see why somebody would want to live there. And we'll continue on. <laughs> So this is kind of the last uh, part, and I'm going to try and wrap it up a little, uh, maybe a little sooner. Um, I'm not going to go into all this stuff, Um, but basically people uh, started looking at their house, you know, to um, To buy it, to buy it because it was was for sale. So um, pretty much what happened was around the time Ingrid and her two friends Janet Jackson and Sherry Robinson arrived at the house along with Jackson's 12-year-old son, Tyrone Jackson, um, of Boulevard 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 Heights, Heights. (laughs) was one of Ingrid's closest friends. Um, So why the women went there that day is unclear. Some friends believe they were going on a shopping trip. A friend of Robinson thinks Jackson and Robinson simply may have dropped by after buying a record in the neighborhood. But the women who Ingrid Ellis had been staying with in Arlington said, I can't imagine why Ingrid would have returned. Nobody knows why. That's why we'd all like to find out. I mean, did they maybe all go there together so there was strength in numbers? I don't know. It could have been. Yeah. didn't work. Prince George's County Police believe that Ingrid Ellis and the five others were killed sometime between 3 and 4 p.m. Between 4.15 and 4.30 p.m., Irving Harris telephoned the Ellis home. He wanted to make a formal offer, but first he wanted to ask Ellis a few questions, specifically water stains on one of the bath- bedroom floors in the basement and a hole in the ceiling of one of the corridors. Harris recognized Ellis's voice when he picked up the phone. Ellis, Harris would re- later recall, sounded tense, not at all like the man who said on the phone, hi, gorgeous, less than two earl- hours earlier. Yeah, because that guy had been in the ho- house um, two hours earlier looking at it, mm-hmm. and Ellis had been pretty upbeat. Um, so, basically... Um, Somebody stopped by the house, a real estate agent. Uh, she went to the house and opened it and said, is anybody home? As I opened it a little more and saw a body on the floor, I shut the door. So she obviously walked into the murder scene. Yeah. She then ran to a neighbor's to call the police. Police searched the house and found that what one officer would later describe as the bloodiest murder I have ever seen. Ingrid Ellis, dressed in casual clothes, was lying dead at the bottom of the main stairway. She had been shot in the head, neck, and chest with a handgun, and each wound alone, according to the medical examiner, would have been enough to kill her. The sergeant did not 
have her police service revolver with her, and according to police, it doesn't appear that she tried to resist. Neither apparently did the three children and two women upstairs. They had been herded into a corner in the back bedroom and killed with a shotgun. If you took away the blood, it would look just like Jonestown. The bodies all just laying there. It was strange. No one tried to get away. Ron Ellis had vanished. According to police, he drove across town in his wife's Volkswagen to Fairfax County and forced a woman acquaintance and her five-year-old son to drive with him. When they reached Chicago, they escaped and, well, they actually escaped at a rest stop is what happened. They, um, he had left the car with the keys in, in the ignition and she left. <laughs> Can't blame her. No. Um, so in the weeks since the killings, the families of Ron Ellis and Ingrid Withrow Ellis have traveled from New Jersey and North Carolina and Missouri to the... Mourn their loss together. together. So So sad. Funeral arrangements fell to John Ellis Jr., the solid loving father who said, I didn't think my son was capable of doing something like this, but I do realize there is a breaking point in every man. Um, So, basically, um, at this time, Ellis is on the run, and he... Ended up, um, May 7th or 8th, he called his father. His father told him to turn himself into the FBI. Uh, he agreed he would surrender, and May 11th, nine days after the murders, he surrendered. Initially, he, pl- he pled innocent by reason of insanity, but eventually pled guilty. He said that he could not remember the murders. He also asked to see the crime scene photos, which oh. is really odd. The reason for the request, according to the motion, is that the defendant feels his firsthand familiarity with the house and certain other items of evidence will enable him to be more useful and helpful in presentation of a factual case. Um, I'm sorry, I don't believe that shit. No, that whole thing is really weird. And thankfully, um, he was sentenced to five consecutive life terms plus 10 years. I could not find why the plus 10 years, but I, I think, think that's they were kind just of a... kind of going, we want to make sure this guy never gets out of gets prison. Out. And he's currently being held at Jessup Correctional Institution in Jessup, Maryland, which is really not far from here. It's really close to where I work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. So um, he is still alive. As far as I can tell, I couldn't find a lot on him, but when I looked him up in the, I guess, record system, it looks like he is still in prison there, but that's about all I could find. Um, But yeah, so I think personally, after reading this whole thing, I think that part of it was the fact that, let's face it, his wife is a police officer and being a police officer is kind of badass. And so he may have been a little bit, um, emasculated. Yeah. Just a little bit, you know, she was, um, moving forward in her career much faster than he was. I think maybe there was a little bit of jealousy there. And I think the fact that she was maybe wanting to do things, not just focusing on the house. Right. They couldn't agree on how to spend their money. And like they said, they didn't have a lot of information as to why they didn't have enough money to 
pay the mortgage. We don't really know what he made before he made that um, and how much he made off of working on cars. Because, I mean, I remember my mom found people to work on cars back in the day and she paid them nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it was also the early 80s and it was a lot cheaper back then. Yeah. I I do think that they, they just... I think they had different ideas of what what they wanted life to be. Yeah. I think he wanted to... She wanted to find herself. Yeah. She hadn't... She had grown up with this dream of being married. And you know what? She'd been married 15 years. She had children that were growing and they just grew apart. And I think I think he was more wanting to... Settle, settle in, in better? Yeah. I don't know. It's like, yeah. They're already settled down, but really settle and yeah. like make the house more of the dream because right. remember they they said on on happier days they talked about putting a pool in the backyard right and so. just being true homebody homebody having those barbecues with the neighbors like his folks did and stuff right where so. she's like i want to go to the theater my she children are interested to. in ballet yeah which is very much more social Mm-hmm. I definitely think she wanted to be more social. He wanted to be more homebody. Home and I think that they just grew apart. Grew apart. And unfortunately, something with him snapped. And he couldn't just let her have her life. And right. that he killed the daughter that was supposedly the apple of his oh, eye. Gosh, I'm just like, mm And I mean, yeah, just the way he did it. And then the whole asking for the photos. That really. Mm. Mm-mm. But that really kind of creeped me out. I would have, mm, yeah, I have a real problem with that. Yeah. So that was our episode. Thank <laughs> you, Doris. Thank you, Doris. It was a very good episode. Yes. Very, very good story. Whether yes. you guys like our episode or not is a completely other story. Yes. And um, sorry, we kind of, I kind of rushed it at the end, but it's. She's letters. watching the snow. I'm going, there is snow coming down behind me. And I know Tara doesn't want to be in the snow for very much long. <laughs> I'm from Illinois. We're both from Illinois <laughs> yeah. where snow happens a lot. There's this thing that actually, I, I think I have to give Jeff Weigel um, his piece for this. It's called the freeze-dried idiot syndrome. <laughs> there are plenty of idiots on the road around here. Yes. I'm sure you all can imagine any of you who live in highly suburban areas with lots of beltways. Think LA, think, you know, mm-hmm. Indianapolis, whatever. It's never fun to drive with just the high volume of traffic we get. It's a Sunday, so it shouldn't be too bad. However, comma, if you add any type of precipitation, be it fog, be yes. <laughs> there's this added level of idiot that yes. comes out. So little droplets of water hit human, poof, we have more idiots on the road. Yes. So, so that was our episode. So thank you for listening to Nothing, Nothing Happens, happens in, in a Small, small town. town, where things do happen, and small towns are not the quiet, quaint places you think they are. And if you would like to support us, you can uh, help us with a little funding at the Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash nothing, nothing happens, happens in a, a small, small town. town. Instagram, you can find us at nothing, nothing happens in a small town. town. Twitter at nothing, nothing happens in a small town. At N-H-I-A-S-T. You think we could do this. It's the first letter of each word, people. Yes. And the highest Facebook page at nothing, nothing happens, happens in a small town at an H I A S T twenty twenty one, and Gmail. You can email us at nothing, nothing happens, happens in a small town, town at gmail.com. 
So <laughs> thanks all. Hope you have a great week. Bye. Bye.